Welcome back to the 232nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how the Supreme Court's uh, immunity club may be presumed as fascist, how rich people actually create poverty, with this one coming from a different angle that you probably wouldn't suspect, and Florida's new driver's license rule is, well, causing a little bit of ruffles. And we, of course, will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So should the Supreme Court even be hearing this case about Mr. Former President Donald Trump being immune from any legal liability because he was president at the time and they could be seen as official actions? Uh, I have my opinions, and this author definitely has their opinions in our first article, but I want to hear your opinion. Throw it down there in the comment section, and we'll jump straight to this one, because all of these articles, I would even I would argue they're pretty hard-hitting, or at least there's a, a lot of different points here that we gotta we got to try to get through. So this one, the first one, actually comes from National Memo, and the headline reads, The Supreme Court's Immunity Club and the Advent of a Fascist Jurisprudence. You see what I mean by hard-hitting? We're jumping right out the gate with fascism and allegations of fascism and so on and so forth. And the author talks about how there was a uh, nice little panel put together by MSNBC, how they were watching it, talking about the absolute craziness that is the idea of the Supreme Court taking on this battle. And I just want to read you the, the second paragraph. And I know I've been reading a lot of second paragraphs, but that's normally because the first paragraph has been fluff. Uh, sometimes they get straight to the point. This one, no, this, this cuts right to the core. Quote, I don't care how you cut it. This is the terrifying result when you elect a raving fascist lunatic like Donald Trump, and he gets the opportunity, aided and abetted by right-wing puppets in the Senate and their right-wing corporate puppeteers, to appoint a gaggle of starry-eyed authoritarian moonies to the highest court in the land. It takes only four justices for the Supreme Court to agree to hear a case. We learned today that four of the justices who went through the authoritarian training camp run by the Federalist Society, which is backed by a small group of fascist billionaires, got together and decided to hear Trump's case, which makes this the absurdly authoritarian claim that he, and he alone, is above the law. So, um, yeah, interesting. I think that, so when we start here, one, calling Trump a fascist, uh, no matter how much uh, you don't like him, um, he did definitely did not implement fascist policies at the level of previous fascist regimes, and even, I would argue, not even close to fascist regimes whatsoever. But, yeah, no, I don't think he reaches the level of fascist. He may be a, a terrible person, and I'm not cursing here, but you know the word that I want to use. Um, and, sure, you may think that the people in the Senate are puppets. I, I don't disagree 100% on that one. Um, they may be puppets for the people that they're representing. They may be puppets for the corporate interests that are there lobbying uh, in Washington. I, I don't have too much of an objection to that one. But then an authoritarian Supreme Court, I don't see that. So what's authoritarian about some of their rulings? Um, hmm, the one where they actually said that, no, the government doesn't have the ability to mandate what people can and can't do with their bodies and actually disperse it back to the states? Or is it the one where the government 
doesn't actually have to give funds and endorse uh, affirmative action. Uh, they can actually leave that up to colleges to decide how they're going to do their admissions process and not have it based on, uh, I don't want to say quotas, because it was never actually proven that there were quotas, but on the idea that you have to admit a certain amount of a t- certain type of people or you have to have certain precedences in place in order to allow uh, underrepresented groups to come in. No, they just said, hey, you need to make it fair for everybody. So uh, there are probably a few examples where this author could twist it, but some of the bigger ones that come to mind initially, especially the ones that uh, people on the left would have an issue with, I, I think they are actually uh, something that, for the most part, opens up options and possibilities. But hey, they got their opinion on this one. I would just end up disagreeing with it. Um, The authoritarian training camp run by the Federalist Society, for those of you who don't know, the Federalist Society is an organization that uh, helps with a whole bunch of different resources, students who are going through law schools who are wanting to fall or have a predisposition towards uh, originalism or textualism, and they're trying to enforce the Constitution as it was intended when it was written, not trying to read into it how it is now. Uh, And then fascist billionaires. You don't listen to any of the billionaires, so I I can't push back on that, except for the fact that I also you can't prove they're fascists unless you're telling me exactly who they are and what their actions are. But a lot of bold claims, and you can tell the author's extremely, extremely angry. What I think is very interesting is they said, ah, we know that four of the justices, four of Trump's justices or the people that are conservatives voted to allow this case. And then I want to read a really small quote from the next paragraph, literally the next paragraph. Although the court did not announce the names of the justices who voted to take the Trump case, it is a certainty that Thomas was one of them. So the point they're making here is, hey, you know, we, um, we can't actually tell you who did it because they didn't release the names, but uh, we're going to call out Clarence Thomas here. Um, but then, remember, like I just pointed out in the paragraph before, they said that, oh, no, no, it is most definitely these conservative justices. Uh, we know that these conservative justices actually want to take on this case. My question is, why do you think it couldn't be Sotomayor? Why couldn't it be Kagan? Why couldn't it be Katanji Brown-Jackson? Maybe they actually want to take up this case because they want to, you know, from the moment it gets there to 100% say no. Okay, we've already looked at similar cases and the president does not have immunity and we want to set that precedent so it can't be used as a legal argument in the future. So to assume that it is just the conservative justices who would be willing to take on this case because it could set a very important precedent and to even assume that you know the way they're going to come out on it just because it's Donald Trump, guess what? They actually didn't rule in Donald Trump's favor during his uh, Supreme Court case that went in front of them during the 2020-2021 election debacle. So I'm sorry, but this author just doesn't like when people don't agree with her. They don't like, or sorry, he does not like when people do not agree with his perspective, and he is trying to outright attack the institution itself as being wrong rather than acknowledging they have different points of views. And he's just outright, outright name-calling a whole bunch of different people, calling them fascist and authoritarian if they don't agree with him, or more importantly, if he believes that they do not serve his ends. And this is what I find outrageous. And the ironic thing is, I I agree with the author for the most part that Donald Trump does not get immunity 
from anything that could be seen as an official action simply because he was president. There are lots of different laws on the books. There are lots of different interpretations. You could say maybe under military actions, a little bit different because he is the commander in chief. And if he has a, a good enough reason to do something, you could probably, you could make that argument. I've heard that argument made before the other argument that at the end of the day, he shouldn't be able to just kill us citizens like uh, happened in multiple drone strikes. I think that is a, another argument. I think the immunity question is a little bit more tentative there. But even his own lawyer said something pretty crazy, and I'm pretty sure everybody acknowledged it was crazy, which is, oh, so if he told the Secret Service or he told the CIA or any of the intelligence agencies in uh, that are federal to go and kill a U.S. citizen and he doing it as the president falls under his official purview, he could do that legally and he would be immune from any charges. Um, no, we would call that an authoritarian action. We could even say that might be an, actually a fascist action if he's going down a certain path in order to implement his will and guarantee that one of his dissidents is shut down. We just talked about Putin and we just called him out for what he did with Navalny. And let's be clear, the actually there was an interesting uh, medical report that it was may have actually been natural causes. I didn't look too deeply into it, but just to at least elucidate the facts that uh, that's still in question. But if it was Putin who did indeed kill Navalny, we have criticized him for doing that and it being an authoritarian action. And I think a lot of people... A lot of people will hear that argument and say, yeah, no, he doesn't deserve immunity for everything. So even for the people that agree with him, even for the people that would be willing to hear him out on the idea that Trump doesn't deserve immunity, he's instantly alienating them by using this language that, no, the court can't be unbiased anyway. I don't think the court's going to come down on the side of Trump on this one. And I genuinely think at least two, and this is speculation, just like his speculate, like he's speculating about who actually voted to uptake the case. I think that there were legitimately at least two liberal justices who said, yeah, I want to take this case up so we can make sure that it is in jurisprudence precedent that the present president doesn't just have blanket immunity. And to ignore that fact, to ignore the possibility of that, and to just claim, oh, yeah, no, it's the conservative and also the conservatives or the originalists and some of them who Trump actually appointed, um, no, they're just doing this so that they can get their way and they can get their person back into office or at least get all of these things dismissed is, uh, is hogwash, in my opinion. Now, the author does bring up a more practical argument, which is maybe it's actually, the point is to actually delay everything so that the ruling can't, the judge in uh, D.C. actually can't start pressing the charges until around October. And then at that point, the rules at the DOJ say, hey, DOJ say, hey, we can't prosecute, we can't go through with this just because it may be seen as election interference. So I, I thought that was an interesting practical argument. And honestly, I, I would be at least opening to hearing, hearing the author's opinion more on that one. Uh, but there's one other part that I wanted to bring up, which is the author is, uh, he's kind of, I don't want to say misinformed because that's not necessarily fair, but he's definitely holding on to old narratives, uh, such as, quote, how Brett Kavanaugh, who got away with sexually harassing a young woman while he was in high school and then perjured himself about it before the Senate, uh, he's in the immunity club, and how do you figure he'll vote? So that's what he says. Um, I'm pretty sure we established that 
almost every single charge that was brought against him or accusation brought against him before the Senate was uh, hog, hog, hogwash. It, I've said that like three times now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we went through multiple media cycles about this where, oh, we're sorry, Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, wait, no, there wasn't any, I'm sorry, Brett Kavanaugh. It was just, we lambasted you. You deserved it, but you got appointed anyway. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe the author's holding on to a little bit of animus there. And maybe, you know, maybe I'm overly cynical. Maybe this guy is, he just sees it exactly as it is. This is exactly how he sees it. It's 100% his genuine opinion. He is not trying to be a political operative. Maybe that's a possibility. I just, I honestly don't see it. So that that's that's enough on that one. And I normally like to spend a little bit more time on the first article, but like I said, we got a few different hard-hitting ones today with a few different out there wacky arguments. And this this next one, well, wacky, that's not fair. They make an interesting point economically. Uh, I think there is a larger issue that we need to talk about here. Uh, This is the article that has the headline, How Rich People Create Poverty. And it comes from the American Institute for Economic Research. And this is a relatively, relatively libertarian organization. And even then, I would say that I have no idea what their social values are for the most part, but at least economically, they are very, very free market oriented, and it would probably fall under a more libertarian party than a modern day conservative party just because of the protective tariffs that some conservatives want to do or other forms of protectionism and isolation, uh, isolation, isolationism, goodness, freaking gracious, and uh, industrial development that some conservatives want to do, especially in their districts where there are normally a a growing number of blue-collar workers who would actually benefit from that and probably like the Republican for doing so. So they definitely fall into the classical, uh, if you could even say classical liberal, uh, but the point being the extremely free market side of the economic battle. So I want to read a few paragraphs down, and if you pull up the article, the link's in the description below, the like and subscribe button. If you pull up the article, probably going to go to about the uh, third paragraph, because they bring up a good point, which is about zero-sum outcomes. Quote, people blame the wants of the many on the luxuries of the few. This is incorrect. Zero-sum thinking, which holds that there is always and everywhere only a fixed amount of stuff to go around. By this reasoning, the fact that I have this indicates that someone else has not. Someone getting thirsty because I'm drinking a can of club soda or sparkling water, my opulence causes their want. If that's true, it's only very true in the very, very short term. People do not have much because they don't produce much. And and while it's true that we could redistribute everything and raise the poor's living standards considerably, we could do so only once. And they they go on to have a few more interesting parts about uh, or explanations about that one. And I want to point out where they're coming from and also some of the things I don't necessarily uh, agree with. So the, the point that they're making Yes, that it is not a zero-sum game. The entire economy is not a zero-sum game. In that, if we're looking at job opportunities, just because uh, there are limited ones here and they can be taken up, that doesn't mean that there aren't jobs in other places and there aren't other firms competing. Sometimes, in very rare occasions, there is only one firm. So you could make that argument, but for the most part, the opportunity exists within the market that 
just because some of these jobs are going away now doesn't mean more won't open up. When it comes to applying, like I said, in the very short term or very specifically, if you're looking at a job in a marketing firm, a very specific job in a very specific location, and you say, hey, I want that, yeah, it is a zero-sum game because only you could get it. Only one other person could get it. But large scale, over a span of time, looking in more than one place, looking across the market, whether that be in a different city or a different part of the city or a different state, then yes, no, it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. Where I want to push back a little bit is the redistribution idea that it would only have to happen once. Um, No, once it happens once, it will continue to keep on happening. And I think that's where the authors would actually want to go with it, but uh, they don't necessarily take it to its logical conclusion, which is once you create the incentive where people at the bottom get to usurp people from the top, and what I mean by that is taking their blood, sweat, and tears that they've put in to investing in property or building up their own wealth, and then redirecting that down to the bottom, that creates a perverse incentive structure where people, one, know it is possible. So, hey, what, what do you mean we can't do it? We are we did it before. I, I saw, it's like saying that, oh, no, hey, uh, Jimmy, uh, I can't, I can't chop that piece of wood anymore. Uh, I know, like, me using my labor to help you out and chop that wood for your house, it's nice, but I just, I, I can't do it, man. You know, uh, my back's really hurting. And then the other guy's saying, I literally two seconds ago, I just I just saw you do it. Like, is your back hurting that much? You look like you're actually happy doing it. Um, it's like you're lying. It's like people saying, hey, okay, the incentive is here. The precedent has been set. We talked about precedent a lot in the last article. And they're like, well, no, no, what do you mean? I, I have a right to your labor. You've been working here for me for the last hour. Why is an hour one minute any different? Why is an hour and two minutes any different? Or once you hit an hour and two minutes, they're like, why isn't another two minutes? Why, why does that matter? So once you, so that you set up a perverse incentive, it will continue. That's where I wanted to push back on this one. Now, here's where the part we get to the part that I really, really don't agree with. Um, this, is, whew, this is an argument for basically open borders. Quote, making people more productive is a laudable goal, but it has a checkered history. The real gains come from people moving to where the labor is, their labor is more valuable, and that's in income countries like the United States. The problem is we rich West Westerners won't let them come. We co-sign them to lives of low productivity and attendant poverty by building walls and saying no foreigners allowed. The kicker, we impoverish ourselves in the process. We impoverish ourselves by keeping markets from working and therefore keeping others poor. At the end of 2020, I expressed a wish that we should roll back border socialism. Those policies are among the main reasons why people in low-income countries enjoy, quote-unquote, enjoy low incomes. If we allow them to move to the United States, they might remain poor by American standards but become rich by global standards. There is an interesting consideration here as well. Adam Smith famously wrote that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, so basically the reach, how far the market is actually able to go horizontally but also vertically. So if the market only appeals to people in one county, then, hey, horizontally you can go out and say, all right, hold on, let's go to the next county over, let's go to the next city, or vertically, if it only appeals, if it only reaches a middle class and a lower class, 
uh, or sorry, vice versa. If it only reaches the wealthy and the middle class, actually you can extend it vertically down and make the products cheaper to reach uh, a lower class. That would be an example of the extending the market and illustrating the extent of the market. Immigration and trade reductions deliberately limit the extent of the market. Smaller markets means less specialization and a coarser division of labor, meaning we're worse off on net. Some people might be made better off by such policies, which is why they support them, but their net gains are smaller than the rest of our net losses. And hey, yeah, no, see, all that makes sense. And the question is that the authors are kind of dancing around and they don't actually address is, should we think of the entire world as one market or should we think of the U.S. as one market and the other markets around the world as distinct markets? And the reason this is important, because let's be clear, all of these markets are actually intertwined. So yes, there technically is a global market that could be more efficient. But is it the job of a nation to make sure the global market is more efficient, even if it does benefit the citizens and other people around the world ever so slightly? Or is it to preserve its home market first, even even if some of those policies can be damaging? Because if you give up your own national interest to global interest, you no longer put your nation first. You no longer put the people within your nation first. First off, electorally, like they even point out here, that is a disaster that's not going to work out well for you. But second off, you start to degrade the sovereignty of your nation. No longer is... <laughs> if you have a nation and it is sovereign, you put that your nation's interests first. If you, if you have a nation, uh, let's say Czechoslovakia, in the Cold War era, where they have actually a false dictator that is part that is working closely with Russia. Basically, they're all put into the USSR. They have uh, puppet leaders, so on and so forth. Um, no, that that is no longer a nation. Like you can say, oh yeah, sure, it has it has its own distinct culture. It has its own distinct barriers, but they're not serving their own interests. They're serving the greater interests of the USSR. There's a puppet leader, and they are no longer a sovereign nation. They are simply a puppet dictatorship, a puppet nation. So no, guess what? Borders are part of being a sovereign nation. If they infringe on the perfect mechanism, the perfect idea of a free market in that, hey, anybody can be, move. That is that is the idea of a free market, and that's also why America is so great, because even though it can be hard, you can move from practically anywhere in the United States to anywhere else. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be affordable. I'm not saying you're not going to have to take out loans, but in theory, you can, and therefore, it facilitates you moving to a place where your labor will be more valued. If there are no wood shops in your town, but there are wood shops in the town over, guess what? You may have to hike 20 miles, but you can hike there and know that there's a possibility, at least, that you're going to get the opportunity to present your argument, show your skills, and show the people in that town over that you can actually provide value and therefore be hired. And sure, that argument can work on a worldwide scale, but at the end of the day, if you start undermining the interest of the population that you are meant to protect, then the question is no longer about economics, but it is about state sovereignty and the duty of a state. Is it the duty of the state to facilitate markets first, or is it the duty of the state to protect every single person's private property? And my question then expands, which is, 
Okay, you may be saying, well, hey, everybody can have private property on a global scale. Sure, who's the enforcing agent? Because guess what? If Mexico comes in and they invade part of Texas, and this is Mexico the nation, not the people, I'm not trying to make an immigrant invasion claim. So if Mexico comes in and invades a lower part of Texas, and they now say, hey, no, this is the land underneath Mexico, and we are going to facilitate the selling of this land to our citizens, then guess what? It is the Mexican government that is ensuring the property rights because they will defend the new border. They will defend the new land against possible aggression from Texans. That is the duty of the state to protect the private property rights of its citizens. And guess what? There's not an international body that will do that. I don't think there should be an international body that should do that, mainly because of tradition at this point and having this idea that every single person across the entire world, we are so, so diverse that having everybody participate in one system where we elect basically a, a ruling body over the entire world is going to create way too much chaos and havoc. Uh, we're not at that point yet. I don't think we'll be at that point for a long, long, long time. That's more of a practical argument than a principled argument. If you could have a system that was somehow able to take in all these different accounts, have different regions, sure, there's multiple ways of looking at it. But the point being is the point of a government, is the first duty of the government to ensure people's market access or is it to ensure their private property access? Because if you don't have private property, it makes it a lot harder to have a market. But if you, do, <laughs> if you don't have a market and you have private property, well, guess what? A market can actually develop that doesn't have to be beholden to the government. So <laughs> my point being, there are priorities here. And yes, your economic argument at least resonates a little bit, but come on. Like, you can't just argue for free borders based on uh, f free, limitless immigration, no borders based on that argument on economics alone. There are other factors. I'm sorry. And like, let's be clear. I believe in free market capitalism, and I really, really do believe that markets can solve a lot of different issues, but there are still things that need to be addressed before we can actually take on those questions, which is, are we going to have a nation or not? Are we going to have borders or not? So that's enough on that one. That's is, And that's probably the most you're going to hear from me on the border issue as well, because to be honest, I think it's too politically rife. I just, the the econo the people who argue border for humanitarian purposes and for, oh, well, hey, we need uh, cheap labor, I, I think, like, those base arguments are very interesting. Uh, I can at least hear them out because I understand. But the one where, hey, no, we need to just do it in order only to facilitate market growth and uh, market optimization, uh, I, I'm here like, mm. I love where you're coming from. I do, but I got to point out where I think you're a little bit crazy on this one. No offense. So let's jump into our last one. And honestly, I wanted to spend more, uh, a little bit more time, more than like three minutes on this one. Uh, but we're going to have to move on from it pretty darn quickly because I do not want to talk off your ear forever. So this one comes from the New Republic and the headline reads, Florida's new driver's license rule is blatant trans voter suppression. And yeah, when I heard this one, I was, I was in very intrigued. I was very, very intrigued. I read it and I was thinking, okay, they make some very uh, interesting arguments here and I'm not going to have enough time to break all of them down 
in a way that would actually be satisfactory to anybody who disagrees with me. And anybody who agrees with me is probably like, why are you even talking about this article? Uh, so maybe, maybe at the end of the day, you won't actually get a the best breakdown possible on this article. But I, I do think that it's something that we need to at least bring up here. Quote, According to an analysis from the Movement Advance Project, Florida is an outlier now, one of two states that bans people from updating their gender marker on their driver's license. Compare that to 22 states, along with D.C., that permit residents to have a M, F, or X on their license that doesn't require the license holder to provide certification of their gender from a medical provider or similar profession. For those who live in a state where their certification is from a licensed medical professional or court order is required to change a name or gender marker on identification, the time and money involved can put updated IDs out of reach for many trans people. So the reason that I think this is very interesting, and the reason I think, the, the one argument that kept coming up in my mind was, okay, your legal documents, if you want to change your legal documents, aka your birth certificate, which you can't do in some places, aka your driver's license, um, all these other legal documents that would be floating around these sort of things, um, what happens when you go to court and you are going to jail and all of your legal documents, your birth certificate, your driver's license, all say that you are a woman. And therefore, they send you as a woman, they send you to a woman's penitentiary, and you are you identify as a woman, but you still have a male appendage. You still have the ding-a-ling swinging between your thing-a-ling. Uh, that makes no sense, between your thighs. So you could possibly impregnate people. You could possibly, and let's be clear, I'm not saying the R word, uh, grape. I'm not saying that graping doesn't happen in a the situations in jail anyway, especially with uh, male officers there. But the the point being that you're, the state would actually be facilitating this and making it easier because all of your legal documents say one thing while the biological reality is another thing. And the reason that these people argue that, hey, okay, this is a problem because it can cause trans people discomfort. It can make them very feel as though they're not being identified, that they're not being uh, recognized. Guess what? If you are a person who identifies as another sex and you want that to not be a problem on your photo ID, guess what? On your photo ID, it will have your biological sex, but you can legally change your name. So you can legally change your name. So it has to be identifying or at least coherent with the way you view yourself and the photo on the ID can be the way that you present to the world. So guess what? It still says your biological sex. You have to acknowledge that because that was what you were born at. That's what you were born as. You, you got the XX, the XY. We're excluding the very small amount of people that have uh, Klinefelters or any other type of intersex. And yes, people will probably say, ah, wait, wait, hold on. You can't just exclude them. Uh, they are, I believe the last time I checked a uh, 0.01, sorry, no 0.1% of the population. That is absolutely minuscule. So we can't make the entire rules based around that tiny percentage of the population. So my point being, what I was getting at is the photo will be up to date with the way that you like to present to the world. You just have to acknowledge your biological sex and they don't have to quote unquote dead name you 
because your name is up to date. It has been legally changed and it is now on your ID. Yes, I do understand that this whole process can be expensive, but if you want to, if you genuinely believe that you are of another sex and you want to present that way to the world um, and it really causes you that much discomfort, you're going to go through these efforts in order to get to the place where it is more socially acceptable, where your name has been changed, where you've gone through all the legal legalese. And if you're a person who it's just a fad for you, and I'm not saying that this is a large percentage of people, but there are definitely people that I've known that have claimed to be one thing. And I'm part of this generation that grew up with it in high school and college that claimed to be one thing. And my, my friend, oh yeah, yeah, I'm kind of like, ah, maybe not, maybe not binary. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little, and then guess what? After two years, completely stepped out of it. The people that are not willing to actually put in the effort who actually have to go through this entire process in order to affirm themselves to make themselves feel more comfortable in real life they will do it and then people who are kind and not rude will acknowledge them as such but you still can't deny your biology and anybody who is just doing it because it's a fad and doesn't want to do all this extra work in in order to have to identify as something else they will be dissuaded from doing it and the people that aren't genuinely affected by this and who are just jumping on the bandwagon will be off Yes, I understand that there are other issues that come along with this, which is for now it may it may be very difficult because your the way you present versus the your ID is going to say some different things. And I understand that if you really do feel as though that you are of the other sex, that it, it can be discomforting. It can be uh, sometimes traumatizing. I guess is the the word when you get called some uh, called the opposite sex, like ma'am or sir. And the idea that you have to acknowledge, hey, no, it says on here that I am a male, identify as a woman, but my biological sex is male. I understand that that can be discomforting, but that is also the reality. That is also just the simple situation, which is I was born male. I feel like I'm a female, but I was born male, so I am a transgender woman. There you go. Acknowledge the reality. Take it on. And by acknowledging the reality, accepting who you are, even the parts you don't like, maybe that will make things a little bit easier. And I'm not saying that this will, it will be easy. I'm not saying that. I'm saying maybe, maybe. And I understand and I empathize with your situation. And if you have comments, throw them down in the comment section. Love to hear what people have to say. If this is laws specifically affecting you, I would love to hear what you have to say. All right. So let's jump to our daily delight. And this one is a interesting one. It comes from Boing Boing, and I don't think I've seen anything about a capybara, or at least I definitely haven't done a Daily Delight or article about it before, but this little guy's name is Harold. And I'll just read you one quick quote, and then you can come see the cute photos and videos. Quote, Harold and Barbara make the cutest noises when they're happy, and they almost sound like they're purring. When these capybaras crunch on vegetables, they also provide excellent sounds for ASMR videos. And if you want to go see any of those, you want to see any of the cute photos, you can find the link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.